And that was, that's always a wonderful time. Um, just reminded of just how many people around town that we know that maybe we forget love the Lord and are worshiping at the same time as we are, but in a different church building. And, and so my challenge is that as you run into those people around town, to just go out of your way a little bit to shake their hand and ask them how they're doing and remind them that we are united together under the Lordship of Christ. What an awesome opportunity. Uh, we looked at one specific thing. Peyton did a great job with the, the benches on the stage and all the pressure of those of you who came and sat here and your minds just went blank as everyone stared at you with all that intensity. Uh, and we learned one thing, right, is we need to know the word of God, not just, not just familiar with it. We need to know it. We need to study it. We need to understand it so that when we go through the seasons that we go through, that we can be reminded of what are the truths of God's word. Because here's the thing, and and we've probably all had this happen to us. Our feelings betray the facts, right? We feel something, we're hurting for something, and we need to be reminded of what is true, not, not to belittle the feelings, but to have the feelings then come alongside of and under the authority of the word of God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. If you're visiting with us, um, we, we just study scripture and we just work our way through. And so at the end of December, we started the book of Acts. And so you can open to Acts chapter 3. And it took us six weeks to get to Acts chapter 3. But we're going to do the whole chapter in one day today. Um, thank you, Lee. That's very good. I like that. It's very daunting. Um, when I kind of mapped this out at first, I was kind of like, we'll do this in two sections, but, but it kind of ends where I was unsatisfied and I want to I know the response. And so I went through and I was like, nope, we're going to do the whole of chapter three, forgetting that it kind of ends on a cliffhanger as well because there's the response of the crowds as well in chapter four, but we, we can only do so much in so little time. So we're going to do chapter three this morning. But what we're going to do is we're going to read the first 10 verses and we're going to kind of study those a little bit, and then we're going to move on uh, to the next, kind of the last half of the chapter, and then study that. But just as a quick reminder of context, because this is going to be important, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in chapter 2, and it says that flames of fire rest over each of the about 120 or so believers. And there's this imagery that we're to be reminded of in the Old Testament that in the temple is where the flame fire was, the pillar of cloud, that God's presence dwelt there. And that people had to go to the temple and offer sacrifice for their sins to become ceremonially clean so that they could enter into kind of a part of God's presence. But there was a veil blocking people from the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And in the New Testament, when Pentecost comes, this is the imagery that we're supposed to see, but the fire that comes over each individual then is the Holy Spirit indwelling each and every one of us. And this is super important because we don't go to a place to worship anymore, though we do come to gather to sing praise at the church. But the the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so in a very real way, we are little mini mobile temples of God that take the word of God, that take the presence of Jesus out into the world. We don't have to invite them here, though you're welcome to invite your friends on Sundays. And I hope you do. But more than that, I hope that you go out and you show them who Jesus is by how you live, how you talk, what you do, what you say. And so we are now many mobile temples of that. And that's what Pentecost represents. And then Peter preaches a sermon 
Actually, I should say real quickly, is a miracle happens, but as we talked about, the miracle was to point to the sermon that Peter preached. And he declared to the Jewish audience there that this Jesus, this Jesus who you crucified, he was the Messiah, all written through the Old Testament. You just didn't see it. But he also says the death of Jesus on the cross was also God's foreordained plan so that sin would be able to be paid for once and for all. We don't need to go to the temple to offer sacrifice so that we can be ceremonial clean. Jesus now makes us clean. What a wonderful, I don't even think we can process uh, the Jewish freedom that would come from that truth. And so about 3,000 people confess Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah, and the church begins. And then we talked about four key components to the church and its ministry in those early years. And yes, the church grows and changes, and, and there's unique uh, unique things about each church in each context, but these four things need to be center of it. The first was the teaching of the apostles, or, or in other words for us, submission to God through what? The Holy Scriptures. And that's what we want to be about. We submit ourselves to the word of God. Second thing is fellowship together. And, and by that, I don't just mean kind of hanging out together, but worshiping together. Coming together in spirit and in truth that we would lift high the things of God, that we would encourage one another. And as April pointed out, this has been our whole goal for potluck. It's not for just you to build friendships, but to you to build family relationships under Jesus Christ so that you would know you have people that are praying for you and caring for you, and that when you go through time of need and hurt, that you have a certain group of people that you can go to that know what you're trying to accomplish or how you're trying to process everything under the authority of Jesus. The third thing, this is the great one which potluck fits into, was eating together. But again, not just eating together for the sake of it, but eating together to develop those close relationships so that we become that family of God. But it also is very central about about, um, communion, coming together to share in the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins and that we are forgiven and that he rose again, conquering death, and also that he is coming again. And so we declare that together when we're, when we are together. And I think that's hugely important because sometimes, and I'm sure all of you have felt this at some point, sometimes you're sitting there in the chair and you don't want to be here because you're hurting. You're in pain. You're going through crisis. But this is where we need to be because this is where we can remind ourselves that in the gospel there's hope that Christ is coming again and that my pain is only temporary that one day I'll be brought to eternity with God and I'll be able to say goodbye to all of the pains and hurts and everything from the past. What an awesome truth that is. And so those are the, and then the fourth thing, sorry, is prayer, that we want to pray together and praying together, you know, actually, I'll leave the person's name out just because I don't want to incriminate anyone. Um, But in his kind of 40 plus years as a pastor in ministry, he, he has said to me that, One of the primary things that he does when he's looking for elders for elder training is he says he wants to hear them pray. Because when we pray, we reveal our heart to God. And I think that's true for us corporately as well. That as we learn to pray, and sometimes it can be like, man, I don't want to pray in public. I might say the wrong thing. I might get embarrassed. I might get nervous. And that's all true, and that's all okay. But what's the only way 
to get to a place where we're confident in prayer together is by practicing it. And so we want to do that. And so we have Friday prayer meeting uh, over Zoom. If you would like to get connected with that, uh, you can either email the church office or talk to Debbie Tarchuk directly. Or the third Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. upstairs in the library back there is we're opening it up to pray together for our families, for our church, for our community, for the Bow Valley, for our country. We want to become a church that prays. All of that leads us to chapter 3 and a very unique miracle that we're going to see happen. But once again, we're going to talk about the miracle, but the miracle is in service of something else. The miracle is in service of the proclamation of the gospel. And so we're going to see that. So let's read the first 10 verses of chapter 3. It says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. What an incredible kind of moment. But I think there's a lot in there that we read over that we need to get into the original context to try and help us do. So we're going to do a couple of nerdy things this morning um, so that we, you know, we're going to do some some really careful looking at certain words in the text here. But I want to go down this rabbit trail first because I don't think it's super important um, in the sense of this exact gate, this beautiful gate. Because if, if you open this and you read it and you look at some study notes or you open up a commentary, there's, it's a big rabbit trail to go down. But I don't want to ignore it and pretend like it doesn't matter. So let me say it this way. Is the beautiful gate... Um, is likely, most likely, according to the majority of scholars, a gate that was uniquely different than the rest. And the reason we can be confident of that is a first century Jewish historian who lived in the days of Jesus, though wasn't a follower of Jesus, um, but he, has become a, he was a, a Jewish historian that wrote many things that exist to this day. So we have his historical documents so many years later. He says this. There were ten gates. Uh, Nine of them looked very much the same, but there was a tenth that was made of Corinthian bronze and far exceeded in value the other gates which were plated with silver and set in gold. And this is the beautiful gate. So I think that's likely true. If it's not, that doesn't really change anything. The point is that a man was going to one of the ten gates that was around the temple, and he was, he was going, he was being brought there, rather, I should say, because he couldn't walk. But he knew that if he went during the hours of prayer and of worship, that he was likely to receive alms. 
So the the Jewish uh, tradition here, the rabbinical teaching, was that there were three kind of pillars of of the Jewish faith. One is the Torah, or the law. So in other words, God's word. The second was the showing uh, of kindness. Oh, sorry. The second was worship of God in the temple. The third was showing kindness or charity, of which almsgiving was the main way to do that. So if you were a Jewish person and you wanted to be following under the rabbinical teaching, is you, you would go to the temple, and when you saw people, you were in a much more likely state to give alms to those in need because you had just gone to worship. You had gone to pray. And so you had been reminded of that charity was vital. Now, I'm going to argue that charity is vital, but with a different motivation. The motivation for our charity isn't to earn God's approval, but to share God's kindness and his love with others. And so people would give alms to this man there, and that's kind of how he would make his living. And so Peter and John, it says, notice, they were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. They were going to pray together. They were going to worship together. Now again, there's, it's interesting because they're going to the temple to pray. Uh, the difference being is that they're praying now under the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And so there's many Jewish people who do not yet um, and have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so we're going to see the response of the crowd in a minute to this miracle. But so they're there and they see this man and the man asks for alms from them. And I love verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him and said, Look at us. And his answer is, I have no silver and no gold, so I wish you wealth. Is that what it says? Is that what we do? Right? Like, I mean, how many times have probably all of us can relate? How many times have we seen someone asking for, for kind of financial help on a street corner? And we've been like, man, I don't have, right? Everything's plastic nowadays. I don't have any change or any money. So have a good day. And we just walk off and we go, oh, I would have helped, but I couldn't. Peter doesn't let that stop him here, and I just love it. I have no silver and I have no gold, but here's what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nazareth, pardon me. Rise up and walk. Here's the thing. The man was going to the temple to receive alms so that he could live. What he was asking for was what he thought he needed. The thing is, God knows what we actually need. In this case, Peter is the spokesperson once again, but him and John go and they say, man, we see this man in need and we're compelled to respond. But notice he says, in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Scholars point out that there's a big shift here between the miracles that happen in the Gospels and the miracles that happen in the, uh, in the book of Acts, in the kind of early church age. And the main difference is this, is in the Gospels, the miracles were done in the authority of Jesus by Jesus himself. So he often said, paraphrasing, but he would say, under my authority, right? He would say, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd, or the Pharisees would go, you don't have that right. You don't have that authority. And he would show them that, yes, he did. Well, what you see here is the apostles don't claim it on their own authority, but they claim it on Jesus. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now, we have to do a little nerdy thing about this, in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? 
Because uh, some traditions will teach that you just got to, like, a prayer isn't a prayer unless you add in Jesus' name at the end, and then amen. And then it's all okay. Kind of like a sense of, of bartering with God where it's like, because I asked in Jesus' name, God is bound by a contract to do it. Well, this idea comes from a misuse of John 14, 13, and 14, where we read this. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And if you just take that last half, just the last verse, and you say, anything that we ask in Jesus' name, he will do. Well, great. Let's go buy a lottery ticket, everyone. And let's go, in the name of Jesus, may this be the winning ticket. Anyone ever done that? No, don't raise your hand. (laughs) My point is that's not going to work. Why is that not going to work? Well, let's look back to the first verse. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be what? Glorified. Does me winning a million dollars glorify the Father? Or does it glorify me? Right? How many things do we ask because they glorify me? How many things do we approach in God and prayer because it's what I want, because it benefits me, and we don't say, God, would you use you, sorry, would you use me to accomplish your purposes to bring you glory? What Jesus is saying is that anything that we ask that accords with the character and it aligns with who the person of Jesus is, that God will do. Andreas Kostenberger writes, praying in Jesus' name means praying in a way consistent with his character and with his will. Then he adds this little tag. A person's name in the ancient world represented what that person was like. Right? So when we pray in Jesus' name, and actually Lee did it this morning, and I didn't even tell him this, but he prayed in Jesus' name about our forgiveness. Isn't that what God wants? Isn't the scripture teaches that it's God's desire that all would come to faith and repentance? And so we pray that in Jesus' name. We're, we're coming underneath the will of God and saying, God, if this is your will, we want to pray this in faith, believing that you will accomplish these things. We're not demanding and saying, oh, in your name, you now have to do something. Now, here's the thing is, One way or another, and I don't really know how to quantify all this, so unfortunately I'm not going to give you a very good answer for this. But there was something uniquely different about the apostolic ministry of the first century church and the authority that Jesus himself gave to those 12 men where they did all kinds of miraculous things regularly. And how Peter knew in that moment that I don't have silver or gold, but I know that it's God's desire to heal you. I don't know the answer to that. I think sometimes in our own lives, we've known for certain that God is at work in doing certain things. But a lot of times, we're not real certain at all. Peyton and I have been talking a little bit about calling and, and ministry and what does that look like. And, and, and so the conversation kind of went further to that. I've known with 100% certainty very few things in my life. Was I supposed to come here to be the pastor of Banff Park Church? Every time the phone hung up after an interview, Shayla and I looked at each other and we went, well, there's no way they're hiring us. Because in our own minds, we were like, oh, I don't think this is working. 
I, I don't think they like us. I don't think they want whatever it is. And yet we stepped in faith and went, okay, we'll have the next interview. We'll have the next interview. We come here to do the candidation. Very rarely have I been like, yes, I'm certain that this is what's going to happen. Mostly it's, God, I think this is what you're calling me to do. I think it's consistent with who you are and your character, and so I'm going to step through that. What we see in Acts is a little bit more intense at times. And I don't have the answer for that except to say that the apostolic ministry was different in some ways than ours. The good news is we have the same authority in Jesus. We have the same spirit at work in us. And so I need to submit myself under God's will, and when God makes his will clear to me, I need to step out in faith. The problem is that's such a personal thing that there's not like if, if one plus one and plus one equals three, then do this. And sometimes I wish that that's how God worked. Uh, me and Janette were having a chat last week, and she said, I just want God to write it on the wall for me. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that would be great if God did that for everything, right? Like, okay, this person's going to come up to you at 10 o'clock today, Greg. You need to make sure you say this. Like, that would be so much easier, wouldn't it? But I think kind of that's the point. Is it's up for us to discern and to see and have eyes to see and ears to hear. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. So the person that's sitting there looks at them, right, expecting to get something, and he gets way more than he ever expected. And he's healed. And I think when we think about that miraculous moment, right, of this man jumping up and being able to walk, I I love how it says, instantly his ankles were made strong, and he was able to just arise. And that's kind of where we think of the miracle, but the miracle goes far beyond that. And again, our Jewish history becomes really important. This individual being lame could never enter into the inner sanctuary because according to the Jewish law, he had a blemish. So he was laid at the gate. He could see what happened inside the gate. He could watch his friends, family, whoever, right? He could watch those he loved worship God and and take part in every aspect of the Jewish customs that, that he couldn't for his whole life. And so notice what the text says. He stood and began to walk, and he what? Verse 8, entered the temple with them. It's the first time in his life that he got to walk in and he got to be not only physically healed, he's now part of the community. I, I don't think we see that unless we do the homework. When we read it, we just think about the physical healing. John Polhill said it this way, for the first time he was deemed worthy to enter the house of worship. Now here's the thing, who made him worthy? Jesus, because Jesus healed him. Way more is going on here than simply his ability to walk. Okay, one last really nerdy thing. because This is really interesting. In verse 8, it says, and leaping, he stood up and began to walk. And then later on in verse 8, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, these are the things that we don't see in English. This is where if you pick up a commentary in kind of original language, it becomes really, really interesting. This particular word for leaping used in the Greek is a very rare word. 
In fact, it's only found once other in all of Scripture. And it's found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's found in Isaiah 35, 6. And it's in reference to the Messianic age. So Luke, who's writing the book of Acts for us, he's putting a little Easter egg in here for us. That we miss in English. Unless we open our resources and really look and explore. Luke's putting this little moment in here to remind us that yes, in the name of Jesus, the messianic age is here. And things that we're going to read in the Old Testament about the Christ are going to happen at an accelerated rate, which we see in the book of Acts moving forward. It's just a little nerdy thing that I think is very interesting, very cool, and a reminder that when we approach God's word, we're in English anyway, we're always approaching it a translation. So it's always good to go back to the original languages. And if we can't read those, there's all kinds of great resources that do that homework for us. It just takes a little bit of work, but the payoff is pretty cool. So this person is healed, and the crowds are filled with wonder and amazement at all that happened to him. I'm going to read the rest. The rest is going to go quickly, but let's read this. While he clung to Peter and John, this is verse 11, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And... and Sorry, verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know you all, sorry, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now that sermon's quite a bit shorter than the one we read in Acts 2. That doesn't mean the sermon was shorter. That's just what Luke has recorded for us. Now again, it's very Jewish-focused to those people. But remember Acts 1.8, and we're starting to see kind of little 
indications of how this is going to be fulfilled is you will receive my power and you will be my witnesses where? First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And so when we read it and we see, man, it's really a pro-Jewish crowd that, that God is uh, working through the apostles in. Well, that's because that's what he said he was going to do. He's starting there and then he's going to bring it out. And so some of the stuff that's written here, this culture, this in this context, they would have understood very clearly. When Peter is saying Jesus is the Messiah, they know exactly what he's saying. Now, most of the Jewish crowd had rejected that. But remember, in his first sermon, 3,000 people had come to faith, and the church grew, and what did it say? Day by day, it added to the number of those who were being saved. So do you think that the Jewish crowds in Jerusalem, there were some stirrings going on? The church was doing incredible things. People were coming to faith in Jesus. They were hearing this message. This isn't the first time. Maybe, maybe for some it is. I shouldn't say that blanket statemently. But there's so much happening behind the scenes and the church is growing like crazy. And maybe some of the people have heard this many times. But Peter for this moment is declaring to them, look, you killed the author of life. Pilate was going to let him go. But you wouldn't let him. You're culpable. But notice what he says in verse 17. I know that you acted in ignorance. It's actually an incredibly gracious statement, isn't it? Because he could have been like, you killed him, and so you had your shot. You're done. Like he could have. That wouldn't have been correct. But I think that's the human, you know, that's how we probably would want to respond in our flesh. Peter says, you, you acted in ignorance. It wasn't it wasn't that you knew what was going on. In fact, Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right? Here's the thing, and we all need to get this, is that we are guilty when we're born because we reject God by the way that we live and by the way that we act. We're not innocent. But Peter offers grace. Now, he, also, he gives them both, right? Is you stand condemned, you stand guilty because you did this, but you acted in ignorance. And so, look, there's opportunity for you to confess that and to move towards Jesus. In verse 19, repent is what he says. If you remember the Acts chapter 2 sermon, that was kind of the big moment. That's, that's Peter's main theme. It's all about repentance. It's all about evaluating our hearts and our minds, and our life, and seeing them now in the context of Jesus as the head. Jesus is the Messiah, and I want to submit myself under him, and so now how I live is radically different. Is it perfect? Well, April and Lee, they both said it already, is we're not. We don't claim to be, but we do claim to serve the one who is. And we do claim that the one who is is at work within us and has given us his spirit. And so we ought to live very differently than we used to. And that's how he finishes, by turning, this is verse 26, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. See, the point is this, is Jesus died on the cross so that all who had rejected could turn and repent and go towards that truth. Jesus himself in Luke 23, 34, cried this out on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for why? They don't know what they're doing. You could argue pretty convincingly they knew exactly what they were doing. At least 
physically. They were saying, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah, and we say he's not. And so he's blaspheming, and so he ought to die. Doesn't that show the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of God? That even those who were hanging Jesus on the cross, that Jesus called out for mercy from the Father towards them? How is that practical for me and you? That means there's nobody in our lives that is undeserving of God's mercy and kindness. By extension, that means there's nobody undeserving of our kindness, our love. Now, it doesn't mean that we just accept everything, right? Peter doesn't just say, I know you acted in ignorance, so don't worry about it. He says, I know you acted in ignorance. You didn't realize who this was, so God's given you his mercy. So repent, turn, and go towards him. What will happen? Your sins will be blotted out. Times of refreshing may come for you. It's kind of, that's a very odd sentence in there. It's very unusual in the New Testament. But I think it's fairly straightforward for us to understand is when we let go of the things that we want to hold on so tightly, sometimes we find great amounts of, right, refresh. I don't have to hold that. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to perform. I can, I can let it go. But do you notice in this that Peter also talks a great deal about the second coming of Christ too? Now, it's interesting how he words it, right? Um, Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So what he's not saying is we need you to come to faith in Jesus so that Jesus can come back. Or is he? Phil, you really like Romans? Is he saying that? The book of Romans seems to indicate to us that there's going to be a mass revival of Jewish people who have rejected Christ that will come to him and then Christ will come again. Does Peter know he's saying that or is that the Holy Spirit working through him? That's a different question for another day. But what I think is happening, he's not, he's not making some statement that unless this individual here, if you don't come to faith, Jesus can't return. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is God is... Um, merciful and gracious and patient and wanting you to come to faith. And, and we've seen that now because in the New Testament, all the apostles, all the followers of Jesus in that first century seemed to think that Jesus was imminently coming back. And here we are about 2,000 years later. And God's still patiently waiting, bringing people into the family of God, rescuing sinners to salvation, bringing them to be a part of our church families. All Peter's saying is that Jesus is coming again. Jesus wants you to repent. He wants you to be part of his family. And he is going to come. Now he's going to come when God has ordained that moment. But he also says God spoke this by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, he's telling this, again, Jewish group of people, the same thing that he has now learned, at least partly learned. He's going to have to relearn this a few times, actually. But we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right, where the disciples go to Jesus and they go, is it now? Is it now that you're going to come and you're going to liberate us from this Roman nonsense? That's my paraphrase. That's not what it says. Are you going to liberate us from the oppression of the Roman government? Are you going to rule and save us? To which Jesus doesn't really answer that question, but directs them to a better question. 
because the Jewish people did not understand that the Messiah needed to die or that he was going to rise again or that there was going to be a second coming. Now, you and I, with that context in mind, we can look back and we can read Isaiah 53 and we can go, this is directly speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus. We can see moments that talk about his resurrection. We can see prophecies that talk about both his first coming and his second coming again. And we see that with some clarity. But the Jewish people didn't and the disciples didn't either because when Jesus died, where did they go? They just went back to their lives and went, what just happened? I thought this was the one. In fact, on the road to Emmaus with the resurrected Jesus, though they don't know it, they said, we hoped that he was going to be the one to liberate us. They didn't see it. And so what Peter is saying is this is not new information. The prophets since, since, well, he first gives Moses the example, but then he says from Samuel to kind of the end of the prophetic uh, Old Testament is that all of them were pointing to these days. We just have to have eyes to see it. And this is where I want to go back to verse 11. Pardon me, verse 12. Because we read right over something that I think is really, really important. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. To address the people, what did he have to do? His eyes had to be open. And he had to see. For you and I, are we having eyes open to see what God's doing? Are we excited for the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with people and so our eyes are open looking for moments where we see tender hearts? Right now, a miracle happens and they're looking at it going, man, Peter, like, like you just raised this man to, not from the dead, raised him with, with uh, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Words are gone, you know. <laughs> And Peter could have taken credit for this, right? But, but he has eyes to see it, and he goes, God's at work. God's doing something. People are responding. And so what does he do? Does he go, yes, thank you, we've done a great thing. He goes, no, it was through Jesus. He saw the moment and pointed everyone. And then he very literally pointed them to the cross, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Jesus. All in what? You read that in four minutes? I think sometimes we think, man, sharing our faith, that's really hard. It's all written for us. We just got to figure out how we're going to internalize those things so that we can share it with people. We don't have to come up with some new way to do it. We just have to come up with what Scripture has already told us. Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? In other words, you know that we couldn't do that. This is about Jesus. Are we going to point other people to Jesus and then are we going to declare the things about Jesus? Now remember, we read about this and we go, man, crowds respond, right? 3,000 people in Peter's first sermon come to faith in Jesus. And we go, no one's ever listened to me like that. Well, on the flip side, what we're going to read in chapter 4 is this is the point where they start throwing the apostles in prison because the religious leaders come along and they don't like it. They don't like what's being taught. And so you and I, we're going to have people that don't listen. We're going to have people that reject it. We're going to have people that aggressively reject it. In our world, if you share your faith with somebody in a country where you can't, you can be killed, no questions asked. 
we have the most religious liberty of maybe anybody in the world? Have we gotten very complacent with that? Or are we willing to have eyes to see and go, here's what God's doing, I'm going to share. Some will accept, some will reject. And if my own experience is kind of indication of maybe the norm is usually people don't really reject or accept in that moment, but they walk away and we may never see the choice that they actually make. But the point isn't that I'm called to make Christians. The point is that I'm supposed to declare the goodness of God and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit's going to do in the lives of others. Last nerdy thing. Verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him, that's Jesus, to you first. Who is he sending Jesus to first? So the implication is what? He's not done. If the Jews are going to hear the message of Jesus first, there are others that are going to hear it as well. Now again, we're going to see this as Peter doesn't fully get this yet. Right? But he's already quoted the, the covenant to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I just think it's amazing when the Holy Spirit uses people and writes things that we can see so clearly that they couldn't see themselves. What an awesome God we serve. The Jewish people, you're going to see this first. And you're going to model this by turning from your wickedness towards Christ. So that all the nations of the world would receive that blessing. That all would know that there is a Messiah who came to this earth, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again conquering death, who ascended into heaven to await the time when he is going to come back, judge the world, rule for all time. That's the gospel, isn't it? Peter's preaching the gospel to himself, only he doesn't even fully understand it yet. So we end here knowing that people are going to respond negatively to this, but I hope that's encouraging to you. Because the results are in God's hands, not ours. That's a wonderful thing, but I want to go back to verse 12, and I want this to be our challenge as we leave here. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Are we going to have eyes open to see that God is working? And then are we going to address the people? Now that might be one person. That might be two roommates. That might be ten coworkers. That might be a big crowd. But it doesn't matter if it's one or three thousand. What matters is are we seeing what God's doing and are we responding in faith? To say, God, I see what you're doing now. Let me share the message of the gospel. The miracle always points us to the cross. That's the purpose. That's the point. Let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing chapter, these few little things that are easy to read over, but when we slow down, when we study, we can find so much beauty in them. God, I thank you for faithful men and women, scholars in the original language who have worked hard to show us these things so that we can see them, so that we can see the depth of your word, the beauty of it. God, help us when we read passages like this. Help us to not focus on the miracle and wanting to do miracles. Help us to focus on what the miracle was seeking to accomplish, the proclamation of Jesus. 
May we proclaim who you are to a world in desperate need of you, and may we trust you with the results. May we not worry about how people are going to respond, but may we love them enough to share with them the truth. May we offer them grace and mercy, but may we also offer them the hope of Jesus. God, as we go from this place, I hope that you challenge our hearts to evaluate so that this coming week that you will open our eyes and that we will see what you are doing so that we can step out in faith and be a part of what you have called us to do to proclaim the gospel to the nations. God, thank you for all that you're doing. We love you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that our sins are forgiven. Thank you that we will be brought to eternity with you because Jesus conquered death and that he's coming again. Amen.